Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Enterprise Linux Security. We're up to episode number 70, and in this episode, we're going to continue the saga of Red Hat. How you doing, Joe? All good, Jay. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. Um, yeah, the, we didn't have all the information at the time of last episode. We mentioned that we didn't have the reactions from the different distributions that are building off CentOS. Now we do. There are even some new players entering the arena. And yeah, it, <laughs> I'm going to go back to this in a bit, but it's hard to consider how somebody at Red Hat right now looking at the situation feels that they are in a better position than they were three weeks ago. Yeah, it also kind of makes me wonder how they wouldn't have known it would go this way because this isn't new, you know, where there's a reaction to something. Sure, this is huge and it's bigger than anything else that uh, I've ever covered, but there's always something that happens in the community response and usually it's like, we'll stop using it, we'll fork it, we'll scream at the cloud, so to speak. Um, it's usually the same reaction. I, I, could, I even told you before we hit the record button, the podcast before last, this is going to be huge, and here we are. Yeah. We tend to don't to not like change very much. So when something like this is forced upon us, we tend to react uh, harshly, to put it mildly. Um, so yeah, but we'll be looking at uh, the reactions from the different distributions and uh, the organizations behind those distributions. We will also show how this ties into the unintended uh, victims that I mentioned in the last episode will be showing some real-world examples of how this affects companies like, say, Fortinet, for example, which is itself struggling with some vulnerabilities today. Um, actually, it's struggling with some vulnerabilities for some weeks now, but even today there was yet another one that was just announced, uh, so we'll have a lot to cover there. And... It's the missing link onto, into showing how something like uh, Red Hat's move can affect other companies than the ones that they intended to target with this. Um, so let's go over the reactions. First of all, none of the changes that have been announced so far affect any of the currently available versions. Version 9.2 is still supported exactly as it was before on all the different distros, whether it's Oracle, Alma, Rocky, all of those on 9.2 are still fine and will still remain fine for the foreseeable future until Red Hat suddenly decides to do another change that's unexpected. Um, after our last episode, uh, both Salma Linux and Rocky Linux came out with statements um, to the effect of we'll find ways to get the sources. Rocky was a bit more confrontational. They mentioned that they would be using cloud images and getting access to cloud images of RHEL and in that way they would be eligible to have access to the source code because they were give, being given the, the binaries on their cloud provider. So they would get sources through that or they would use the, the universal binary images that are used as, say, base container images that would also entitle them to receive the source code since those are under GPL and you get the image so you can get the source code for the binaries inside that image. Um, in itself, those are open paths and available paths to continuing projects like Alma and Rocky. The thing is, you'll be trying to face off a giant and Red Hat 
with what we've seen so far, probably won't hesitate or think twice in doing some other shenanigan or some other change and closing yet another loophole. And we'll be in this constant battle here. So fast forward a couple of days and Oracle finally came out. We were all expecting Oracle to, to announce something or, I don't know, a legal system, some battle over source code, fighting the GPL or something like that. They took a completely different approach. I gotta say, I did not see this coming. Um, so Oracle did this powerful statement and there is a couple of quotes there that I want to give that are really amazing and again, totally unexpected for me. Um, one of the things is that, and I'm quoting there, um, CentOS had, the ver had been a very popular free rail compatible distribution in December 2020. IBM effectively killed it as a free alternative to rail. Notice how they are not addressing Red Hat, they are addressing IBM. Um, two new alternatives have sprung up, Alma Linux and Rocky. Now by withholding rail source code, IBM has directly attacked them. And perhaps, and I'm still quoting, that is the real answer to the question of why. Eliminate competitors. Fewer competitors means more revenue opportunity for IBM. And Oracle had no qualms about putting this in writing in their blog post around the, their response to this. Further along that blog post, they have this gem. By the way, if you are a Linux developer who disagrees with IBM's action and you believe in Linux freedom the way we do, we are hiring. This is, this is brutal. Is. Yeah, I, I thought I saw that too, and and it was like when someone—I don't remember if it was you or it might have been you—on Twitter said something along the lines of, uh, you know, stay tuned to the end because there's a, a real good nugget in there that you definitely want to read. And I'm like, yep, yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. yeah, and the very last paragraph on their blog post, yet another gem. Finally, to IBM, here's a big idea for you. You say you don't want to pay all those rail developers. Here's how you can save money. Just pull from us. Become a downstream distributor of Oracle Linux. We will happily take on the burden. I mean, this is amazing. This is a, a killer comment right there for, for Oracle to make. And these questions at least made me question, had I taken the blue pill or the red pill here in this situation? In an argument over open source and the fairness of open source and how you address open source issues, you're siding with Oracle as being the voice of reason over Red Hat. Yeah. I mean, in what parallel dimension are we living right now? I never even thought I would be speaking negatively about Red Hat ever, especially considering that's what I started with, and they've been a champion of open source for a very long time. So this entire situation I would not have seen coming at all, especially last the end of last year when I'm making predictions for the new year. I didn't see anything like this coming. I'm just sitting here making the same you know prediction I make every single year. Canonical gets purchased. We all know it's going to happen. We just don't know when. Um, and that's that's a joke, but kind of. But then I didn't think we'd be talking about Red Hat in this way. So this is just crazy. Um, and just another day after Oracle's announcement, SUSE stepped forward. Remember, SUSE initially, many years ago, started as a rail fork, but then they diverged completely. They, weren't, they are no longer a rail fork. And they announced that they would come out with um, a free rail-compatible distribution, and they pledged $10 million over the next few years to support that. 
So put yourself into Red Hat shoes right now. Um, three years ago, they had three years ago, sorry, three weeks ago, they were facing two competitors that were offering free rail alternatives and they were really annoyed at that. So they made this move. Right now they have those two competitors. They have Oracle that's stepping up and they have a new one, which is SUSE, which is also massive in this space. Um, I really, really don't know who can claim inside of Red Hat that they are better off today than they were three weeks ago. I cannot for the love of anything fathom what they were trying to achieve here. It might have been to get more revenue opportunities, but will they really get more revenue opportunities? There will be more alternatives. Alternatives even for from bigger names than Rocky and Alma, for sure. Um, so yeah, are they better now? Will they be better in the future? I, we were talking about this before we started. We might reach a point where we have a rail ecosystem without rail. If all of these alternatives at some point diverge and start forking off each other, continuing to be rail compatible and not needing uh, direct red, red Hat sources, that they might diverge enough to become a different ecosystem that is much larger than rail. Some numbers that were in one of the articles around this that I read today was that the number of CentOS installations was about 10 times larger than the rail installations. That's massive. You have an ecosystem that's anchored on one distribution that's the smallest of all of them. That's the one with the least deployed uh, system base. Um, at some point, everybody else... It's not that you're wrong, it's just that everybody else packs up and leaves. So they might find themselves just alone in their ecosystem and then they stop being relevant relevant <laughs> <laughs> relevant that's interesting interesting play on words there but um you know the thing about susa it that when they came out with their announcement you know in the back of my mind i was thinking about them the whole time i didn't mention them much because i don't have as much experience with susa as i do other distributions but one of my videos Actually, I probably mentioned this in every single one that I talked about this. I, I just feel a hesitation in trusting a company-owned Linux distribution, given what Red Hat has done. But then oh, when it comes to SUSE, though, I mean, this is a good sign. I mean, I, I, I'm, look, I don't see a negative thing here. I mean, they're literally creating a downstream of Red Hat that didn't exist before and exists now that they want to maintain in addition to, not in place of, but in addition to, you know, the, the distributions, Enterprise Linux, at the SUSE Enterprise, that's what a, a SUSE Linux Enterprise is slave, right? That's the and abbreviation for that. SUSE, and they have some CentOS equivalents like OpenSUSE, which is a free distribution of their uh, SUSE main distribution. And they have a few other dedicated ones. They have a few more than actual Red Hat has for specific use cases, but they have quite a few of them. And there was a statement just earlier today where they claimed that it didn't affect those. This was in addition to those. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and there, there's a whole FAQ that they put out for this in their wiki about this um, decision. And it's very clear. Does this change OpenSUSE, Leap, or Tumbleweed? No. Does this replace one of them? No. Does it change the build system for those distros? No. Do you have to do anything different if you run those distributions today? No. It's literally like, no, 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 this is separate. They're making a separate thing. 
And my understanding is that this also means that there it's not like a here's our downstream with an easy command you could run to go into SUSE Linux Enterprise or one of the other distros to get people over there. I don't even see any evidence of that. We haven't seen their distro yet, but it doesn't seem like it's about that at all, although they could make it that way. This looks like we want to give this to the community and do something for the community, so that's what we're doing. And I, I think their motives, at least from the outset, appear clear to me, and I think it's a good sign, and it almost makes me wonder if it's possible SUSE could just be the exception to my... Uh, you know, opinion against company-owned distribution. So wasn't it like 10 million or something they put into this? Yeah, 10 million, yeah, it's what they announced. That, that's a lot of money to put on something. It's one thing to say, I believe in, or we believe in open source, putting some money on it and creating a distribution in addition to that. That's a pretty clear, distinctive thing to do that points to good faith decisions. And I think it's a very good thing. And I'm, I think I need to, need to pay more attention to SUSE now. Absolutely. And in Oracle's announcement, um, they actually explain more or less how they intend to go about this. Um, they will try to create, to continue to create, they already have one. Oracle Linux is uh, rail compatible. They will try to maintain uh, rail compatibility for the foreseeable future. But over time, they expect that there will be some incompatibilities that arise because the sources will be slightly different and they have the engineering power to go and fix those issues when they affect ISVs or they, when they affect uh, users or when they break something in a major way. If now, say, for example, Almond, Rocky suddenly start just using Oracle sources rather than Rails, as Oracle itself invited them to do. Uh, Oracle put out a tweet asking Almond Rocky, what are you going to do now that IBM closed the uh, closed sourced rail? Just feel free, completely free to pull from us. And that might be an offer that these two distributions just take them on. Um, they might just switch from picking from Red Hat to picking from Oracle that apparently is going to, going to, make, to keep this open and free for everybody. At some point with those divergences that will start to appear, what I mentioned before might actually happen. You might have suddenly a larger ecosystem forming around these distributions than the one that exists at RHEL. The point that we made last week, uh, sorry, two weeks ago in the last episode, um, there is no intrinsic value on RHEL itself. The, the value is in the whole ecosystem being compatible. It's in being a, in a, a juicy target for developers to, to go after. If you have a large enough pool of systems and you want to create applications for Linux, you will look and see, okay, there's a wide array of different uh, distributions and they are not all compatible. Some will use systemd, others will use other things. The library versions that they ship with are not the same. So I need to find a fixed target that I can code against so that it will run on the biggest number of systems out there. At some point, that might not be real anymore. That might just be the ecosystem that arises from the, the distributions that are that were previously on top of CentOS. Now, RHEL might stop being relevant. Again, this is not the, the pun on, on, on relevant. They might stop being relevant, in fact. Um, and it's amazing that they put themselves in this situation. And they have been placing themselves in this situation for the past two years since they announced the changes on CentOS. 
at some point when you're shooting your own food, you're going to run out of food and then you don't stand anymore. So, yeah, they really need to reconsider this. And I know it's their knee-jerk reaction to this is going to just double down on their decision, claiming that it's the best one and that we need to push this forward. But on the long run, this is going to hurt them more than it helps them. And it's not difficult to see that. I'm sure people inside of Red Hat are seeing that. I just wish somebody at IBM did. I think they do. I think they must. Uh, you know, there's going to be a side that we don't hear or see because it's behind closed doors when, you know, executives are talking and things like that. And I, I have to say, I've never purchased a company before, but I have an opinion that's probably accurate. When you acquire a company, you want a return on investment for what you've purchased. You want to know that it's going to be beneficial, that it's not going to be a, uh, you know, negative value. So for Red Hat to be causing this much negative press, which in my opinion, you know, makes them less desirable, which means sales will probably go down. And then IBM's return on investment for purchasing Red Hat in the first place will start to seem like a, a very slippery slope there and whether or not they feel like it was a good idea in the long run. And I guess what is it more interesting to me is IBM isn't, at least as far as I know, doing any damage control of their own to kind of like stop this situation so they could, you know, piece it together, do whatever they got to do to make sure that there's some kind of damage control here. But regardless, it affects everyone in, in the industry. And I think that's what a lot of people, or I shouldn't say a lot of people, so I think everyone mostly understands this, but some people may not. It's, it's not just about Red Hat. It's about the greater community. I had someone give, give me some feedback and, and they wrote in and told me, that they didn't agree with my take because um, apparently I should be made aware of the fact that open source doesn't imply free, but I never said that it does. And sometimes, it, but a few people wrote in and, and I want saying this and I wanted to address this. It's not a question of whether or not you could charge money, right? You can, okay, we've established that. And open source does not mean free is in cost. We also have established that in this podcast many, many times, but it's not about that. It's not about if Red Hat can do this. It's not about whether they should do this, they are, and they can, and that's just not an issue here. They could charge money for it. It's the impact of the greater industry that's of issue here. And as we're about to talk about Fortigate, um, their recent security issues, and by the way, breaking news, I just wanted to say that because there was another Fortigate, Fortigate story breaking as this was beginning recording. Um, but as we're about to see, if even though those vulnerabilities have nothing to do with this, it does, as I'm sure you're about to mention, kind of put that in light that this is a big impact that we may not be fully aware of all the avenues of impact that this might might cause. Absolutely. And this is how the two stories tie together, how Red Hat's move and the, the Fortinet vulnerabilities um, appear in the same episode. Last episode, I mentioned that there would be unintended victims of this. And I asked people as an exercise to look up appliances on and CentOS on Google. Today, and we're going to have the link on the description of the video and wherever this is published, um, we have a link to a document from Fortinet, um, Fortinet, Fortigate, um, a link from them that describes their operating system. And it starts really easy. Fortinet, I'm going to quote, and this is on page four, overview on that PDF file. It's a PDF file describing Fortinet, 
uh, something or other, but they give an overview of the operating system. This is from September of the last year. Um, Fortinet appliances are based on CentOS Linux distribution. Okay, they just flat out come out, and that's the first sentence that they have there. Um, in itself, that is a Linux distribution that is based on a commercial offering of RHEL. Um, I'm quoting loosely here. Um, RHEL and CentOS are designed to be stable, long-term Linux distributions. So that immediately invalidates CentOS Stream as a basis for them. These distributions have a clear timeline and maintenance work is done regularly. Uh, is regularly made available for these distributions. New functionality is not really a goal of them in the management of these distributions, stability is. This is really important. They're not looking for the latest version of all the packages that they have and all the packages that they ship with their distribution. They want the stable versions there. Um, so basically what they're saying is we don't want to be beta testers for RHEL. Uh, they need something that's as stable as RHEL. So, the last part there is that the CentOS organization publishes periodic bug fix and security updates for the CentOS distribution. Tens of thousands of organizations already use these updates. They have this in writing in their own documentation. We're not making anything update, um, out of thin air here. Fortinac software, which is the name of the software that this document is talking about, is dependent upon certain applications embedded within CentOS 7. So. Fortinet relies on the CentOS updates to maintain those applications. They are doing exactly the same thing that Alma Linux and Rocky Linux and Oracle is doing. They're taking CentOS, packaging it and distributing it on their, on their appliances. There is nothing different about what the so-called freeloaders and that term really... Um, yeah. Um, they are doing exactly the same thing. And the important thing here to realize is, okay, sure, they can rebase their operating system into CentOS Stream. But again, by their own intent here, they want stable distributions. They don't want to be beta testers. They don't want stuff that can break at just because somebody updated the wrong thing. Um, so that's not really an option. At some point, they're gonna have to find an alternative because their stuff right now is based on top of CentOS 7 and that is becoming outdated, so they will have to switch to something else. With the vulnerabilities that we're going to talk today, those vulnerabilities are on their application layer, so it's not at the OS level. But the point still stands. If they have a vulnerability at the OS level and because of some incompatibilities that arise from the split between RHEL and Oracle or RHEL and Alma Linux or RHEL and Rocky or whatever they base their software on, because they can no longer base it off of CentOS, because even if RHEL didn't intend to, they will hit Fortinet as well. If, if some incompatibility arises there, the fix might take longer to be deployed for these systems. Now, that by itself might not be very important, but when you understand that the first vulnerabilities that we'll be talking about that affect Fortinet have been patched over a month ago, and there are still over 300,000 systems publicly reachable on the internet that have not been yet patched and can be hacked at any moment, you start to understand the, the scope of the problem here and how big this is and the reach that it has and the number of affected organizations and companies that are hit by this. 
adding more time on top of this to develop patches and to fix issues that arise from slight differences in the code base. I mean, it's self-inflicted pain here at this point. Uh, it's hard to, to emphasize this further because as an industry, as, the, as an IT industry, we are inflicting in ourselves more pain than what we actually have to endure. We're taking longer to develop patches for stuff simply because somebody decided to close source their stuff that was previously open source. It makes no sense to me. I don't know if you can see a logic to this, but I cannot. So there's a logic, no, but I, but I, I do know some of the, you know, devil's advocate positions on this because um, some people have said, and I agree, you know, a company has to go a different direction if they feel like the current way forward isn't working. And it's important that if you're going to shift directions that you, you know, plan this and, and execute it well, uh, or else you could be like Blockbuster, right? I mean, they announced a streaming service. Does anyone even remember that? Probably not, because it, it just wasn't done well, and then they couldn't compete with Netflix. They, You know, these are all companies make decisions like this. And for a company to go a different direction, they can, and they should if they feel like that's not going to be profitable. But it's not whether Red Hat should change directions. It's how they go about it. It's not what they do. It's how they do it. So let's put this into perspective. If let's just say hypothetically in another universe, Red Hat announced this change originally when they said that, uh, you know, CentOS is going away as we know it and CentOS stream is the way forward. Um, they literally said that these distributions, the downstreams can exist. It was right there in the article, even on Red Hat site, they said, we're not going to be creating a downstream, but if you want to, you can, because the source code will be available on the CentOS uh, Git repository just like before. So they gave a green light for downstreams to exist. Red Hat literally gave permission to Fortinet's OS to exist. They gave permission for Alma Linux and Rocky Linux to exist because they went on record and said, you could have the source code, we're going to keep it available, okay? Now, if they had later said, we're gonna wait five years and then we're gonna change, or here's a notice period of a couple of years for you to move your appliances off of it or do whatever you have to do. Sure, it still sucks, but we have more notice, we have more transparency, and in enterprise you have to have that. And if you just pull the carpet from underneath people's feet repeatedly without notice, that's when enterprises start to have a problem because I think most enterprise companies understand how it is. You know, layoffs suck. There's these things that happen that you don't want to happen, the sad part of doing business. But, you know, they, they understand this and I feel like you know, companies are usually forgiving up to a point. If it happens once, okay, we get it, that's terrible. But okay, Red Hat, you could do that, that's fine. But it happens again and again and again, lack of planning, lack of um, anything. And then you have distributions that are given a green light to exist and then suddenly have that taken away. And people wonder why people in the Linux community are upset because we were told we could do this and now all of a sudden we can't, so we have to figure this out. And now you have companies like Fortinet, and believe me, there's other ones. I don't know what I can say, what I can't, but I've, I've heard um, from industry contacts that other appliance manufacturers are having the same you know, discussion on how to move forward. Um, this isn't easy to deal with because if you think about it, if you're gonna create a, let's say an appliance distro, um, maybe I'm gonna create one and it was, let, let's say a year ago. And I might say, okay, Red Hat says we could have the source code and we could create a downstream distribution from their source code. Since they said that, 
I don't feel the need to have my staff create an OS. I don't feel the need to have my staff create a Linux distribution because we were given the green light to use one. So I don't need to hire people to create that. I only need to hire enough developers to develop what it is on top of the distribution. And that's a business decision based on Red Hat's communication. And then Red Hat takes that away. As a business, what do I do? Do I hire more people and create a Linux distribution of my own? Or do I go another way forward a lot of people might say as devil's advocate, so what? Suck it up. Just go a different direction. That's business. No, it, business is a partnership. It's a community. It's transparent. It's keeping people and especially your stakeholders informed. And anytime you don't do that, that's going to cause a ripple effect. We're going to see that in you know IoT devices. We're going to see that, um, in my opinion, IT budgets and spend budgets are going to skyrocket because of this because there was going to be migrations that were not expected. This is going to have a big ripple effect. And circling back around to your point, um, Red Hat wants to increase their profit. How are they going to do that when they're constantly upsetting their, their stakeholders, their customers? I don't think their people are going to be as keen on going with them if they're afraid that the carpet might be pulled out from underneath their feet tomorrow. Planning is a big aspect of all of this, and you deal with expectations. If you're expecting something to be there and after a few months it's no longer available, your plans will probably have to be scrapped. Um, this is what's happening with this type of distributions. Um, the Fortinet appliances have vulnerabilities. We're going to see that they have vulnerabilities, and it's been all over the news as well uh, for quite some time now. And they cannot, it's not feasible for them to run an unsupported OS. So they cannot in, continue to run based on CentOS 7 forever. At some point, they'll have to switch somewhere else. Interestingly, or not, Red Hat also announced that they were going to extend CentOS 7 support for an additional four years. Uh, you would have to pay for that, obviously, but you would have the opportunity to extend your support for an, an additional four years. That's on top of 2024, so you could go all the way to 2028. Um, it's expensive. There are cheaper alternatives out there. Uh, but they came out with this news a few days after the, all of this debacle. Regardless, um, say you're Fortinet. You're looking at your options. Where do I move to? What distribution do I choose? I need to run tests. I need to do more development work. I need to make sure that everything plays nicely together. I need to have an update process in place. My scripts need to be adjusted if there are different locations for stuff in the, in the OS. How predictable are the updates that are going to be coming from the distribution that I pick? All of those are factors that will affect this. And Fortinet is just an example. There are countless other appliance vendors out there that are based off of CentOS. Not just firewalls or traffic analyzers or logging or whatever. There are countless other appliances out there that are being sold, storage, backups, all of those. And many are built on top of CentOS. And moving forward, they will no longer be able to be on top of CentOS. So this adds a new layer here, <coughs> which is when you migrate to a new OS, you're going to have to get that into the devices. So you, that firmware upgrade, that moment where you switch the distribution there, that's going to be really tricky. That's not just a simple firmware upgrade. That's going to affect more stuff in the device. There is a risk that it breaks something, more so than usual. Um, there is also the risk that you're going to be introducing problems that 
come with every new development. The the fresh bugs that were not evident before because you had already a few years built of development on top of that. So you're going to go through the the pains of growing the growing pains all over again. And and that sucks if you're a user of this type of appliances. That's not the position that you want to be in. You want to get your dependable, trustworthy appliances that do whatever it is that you want them to do. And you don't want to deal with all of this mess of bugs that will inevitably creep in. All of these layers are, again, self-inflicted pains. We did not have to go through all of this. It was a poorly executed and communicated move by Rail, uh, by Red Hat, sorry, or IBM, that got us into this position. And that paints them in a really bad light. It's not just... Sorry about that. It's not just the, um, the poor open source position that they see themselves in. It's also, I mean, it's a bad position to be in as a company. You were a trustworthy player in the open space, in the open source space, and now you no longer are. And that really, really sucks for a company such as Red Hat. It really does. And, and someone mentioned in the chat room, and I agree with this, it's all about profit. And, you know, I think at, at the root of this, they want more profit, which makes sense considering they're a company and without profit, companies can't exist. So I totally get that. Um, just like you just said, it's it's not about should they do it. It's about the communication and the planning aspect of it. And my opinion is, and I think we're going to see this in the numbers, which will prove I'm right or wrong. When we look at adoption numbers, I think it's going to backfire because when you make your customers angry, you have fewer customers. And when it comes to, you know, people in IT, especially enterprise IT, we live or die by, you know, SOWs, SLAs, and all these other different, you know, industry terms. We we have a thing, we expect to get something out of it, or where something exists and we use it. It's open source, but there's a planning aspect of communication that was missing here. And I, I feel like it wouldn't be such a big deal if there was a bigger notice period and people had a, a chance to transition, sure, there'd still be some anger, but I don't think anybody could accuse them of poor planning if they had planning. And then this situation, um, I have to think, if there's a company out there that, let's just say they're a Microsoft shop and they want to go to Linux, they're probably not going to go to Red Hat. They see this controversy, they're not going to care who's right or wrong. It doesn't factor in. They don't want to deal with the drama. They don't care who started it. They don't care who's right. They just see word drama, no. That's it. We, we're not going to base our data center on that um, based on what's going on. So it also, in a, in a matter of speaking, it doesn't matter who's right or wrong. It's The effect is the effect. It's going to happen. We're going to see, like you were saying, uh, IoT vendors having trouble. We're going to see companies not going with Red Hat. So if they wanted more profit, which they, of course, did, they're not going to see that, in my opinion. And just like you were saying, they're shooting themselves in the foot. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing here. Yeah, absolutely. Um but yeah, let's let Red Hat rest yeah. for a while. Let's uh, focus Until a bit on Fortinet. <laughs> Until the next time. Yeah. Let's focus for a bit on Fortinet because they've been making the news rounds and just today they have yet another 9.8 CV coming out and being announced. This was just a couple of hours ago. Um, so yeah, uh, remember when we talked about the, the Barracuda email gateway that had this... Um, hack that uh, at some point the company itself advised uh, all the people with those types of appliances to just RMA them and just get new ones because they were unsalvageable. 
Well, we might be reaching that point with the Fortinet stuff. It's not there yet, but... And I saw Wendell from Level 1 Techs uh, claiming that today on one of the videos that they put up. And I tend to agree with that. It's just so much of... There are quite a few similarities between the Barracuda stuff and um, the Fortinet hacks. So the ones that I have information here are not, is not the one from today, but the ones that have been in the news for a couple of weeks now. And it affects three different components. FortiGate, the firewall stuff. FortiManager, which as the name implies is the management solution that controls all the other aspects and lets you configure all of these things. And FortiAnalyzer, which is the logging and reporting facility that they have. Um, there are also some similarities, not just with the Barracuda uh, hack in the way that it has different payloads and the payloads are being adjusted almost in real time as the hacks are occurring, but also with the hack that affected VMware last year. And the interesting thing here is that the end goal for the hackers is not so much compromising the Fortinet stuff, is using the Fortinet stuff as a stepping stone towards VMware deployments inside of the network. Um, part of the attack is directed at finding VMware deployments on the inside of the perimeter and just logging in through the Fortinet stuff and reaching VMware ESXi, for example, or vSphere, and reaching it this way. So let's look at this. I mentioned before that the, the vulnerabilities that were being used to, to, to exploit this we're not at the OS level. So this is not something that's common to all the CentOSs. This is something that is present at the application level. The application is something that runs on top of Tomcat. Um, so Java, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, we all love that. Yeah. It's great. Um, there appears to be a local directory traversal. This is a CVE from last year, 2022-41328. Uh, For some reason, this number seems familiar, but I digress. Um, so through this, the hackers could try to overwrite system files. Not Some of the attempts would fail, but all it took was for them to find one writable file that they could overwrite. And then through the regular operation of, the, of FortiGate, when you execute certain operations on the UI of it, you will in the background be triggering some scripts on the system. So they would be looking for those scripts that would be writable, they would overwrite those scripts, and then they would trigger the operation through the UI. Oh, See? wow. So yeah. they would get the payload in the system, and then they would find the trigger to execute that payload. And this is how they got their initial access. Um, persistence was maintained through um, a technique called port knocking. Port knocking, if you're not familiar, um, is a way to have a, a service or some software reachable over the network without having it always exposed to the network. So it's like a, a secret knock that you give on a door. If I knock three times, then wait, then knock another, then another, you open the door and you let me in. And port knocking is exactly the same thing. It's relatively easy to implement. So when you're at the, the firewall, you can do this with IP tables, for example. I'm sure there are more modern ways to do it. I used to do it with IP tables. You can configure it, say, okay, if I receive a packet with this payload on port 1000, then 2000, then 3000, I will open the service on port 50,000 or something like that. 
and this is relatively easy to achieve and this is one of the ways that they maintained persistence so that they did not have a, syst a service that would be always listening so that it couldn't be found through a simple scanning of the device so you couldn't look at the device and see oh is this running something that it shouldn't it would only be available when the hacker wanted access to the machine right other ways that they that they used to reach the machines inside of the the firewall was that they maintained they worked around 40 managers own firewall with passive traffic redirection. That is, all the traffic that I see on one port, I can simply mirror it to another. And this wouldn't trigger any alerts or any reporting inside of FortiGate or FortiNet or FortiManager, whatever the name, it doesn't matter, it's the appliances. This wouldn't Forty trigger something. any alerts. Yeah. 40 something, yeah, it, you'll hit one if you call it 40 something. Um, so they would use passive traffic redirection, meaning again, there would be nothing specific telltale sign that you could point to that showed that, okay, this system is hacked or isn't. Um, and one of the ways that I see that this is being similar to the Barracuda stuff is that they went so far as creating custom endpoints that they would deploy on this type of appliances to receive specific requests from command and control. Um, that involves a lot of development work, that involves a lot of testing, that involves a lot of time. So again, the just like for the Barracuda stuff, the amount of effort and the amount of work that goes into a, an attack like this means that they have had quite a large amount of time, quite a large window of time in which they perform this development work and this testing and all of that. And that goes to show yet again, as if it was further necessary to reinforce this, that CVE disclosure dates are not the end-all be-all of vulnerabilities. They don't magically appear the day that they, were, that they are divulged. They have been around for some time. You might be exposed to some, to some malicious activity and not even know about it because the vulnerability scanners are not looking for it, because there's no vulnerability to assign to assign that has been assigned to it. And that is a type of blindness that we are all, that we all suffer from in IT, because we are so laser focused on CVEs. This is really bad. We shouldn't be operating this way, but everybody in IT security is that focused on fixing so many CVEs and fixing them in such and such window of time they miss the big picture that there can be stuff affecting your systems that hasn't had the CVE number assigned. It's not being picked by anybody, it's not being worked on by anybody, and the only people knowing it are the people exploiting it. And that's a very... It's a big eye-opener if you're just looking at the vulnerabilities and reports and you see nothing. It you shouldn't feel that secure just because your vulnerability scanning report says you have nothing uh, vulnerable. Nothing that right. it tested. Nothing it's that not... it's aware of. Nothing that, yeah. that it knows to check for, and that, that's the way to interpret it. There's nothing in terms of this particular scanner utility, whatever it is, that's of, of issue or... Um, yeah, and absolutely just keep a look at your... Take a look at your stack. You, you can't go by that, but, you know, like you said, we have there's a bigger picture. Absolutely. Yep. Um, another interesting thing that it did, and I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, they disabled OpenSSL signature verification of system files. 
What this meant was that they could comp compromise the system immediately from boot by replacing the boot image. The kernel image that gets loaded, they would replace that with their custom payload. The, the Mendian team, the, the team at Google that reported on this and made the analysis, the post-mortem and all of that, they found out that if you enabled the FIPS security mode, the systems would stop booting because it would f notice that the checksums wouldn't match what they expected. So they could find lots of things that had been compromised because of that failure of meeting FIPS compliance. Um, it goes to show that when you're so deep inside the system that you can create your own Linux kernel images as a drop-in replacement for what's in the appliance, the time and effort that goes into that, into making sure that that doesn't break the device by itself, that it's workable on the, the equipment, on the hardware that it's deployed on, it's a lot of effort. And that's one of the reasons that this has either been attributed to the same group behind the Barracuda hacks or an adjacent group. Um, the other one was a Chinese associated state group. This might very well be the same type of, um, of malicious actor that we're seeing here. Yeah, it could very well be. And we have the, the developing story that uh, I think we found out about 47 minutes before the podcast started. So there's going to be more to come about this, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, somebody asked about um, IDS being able to catch this. Um, Mendiant actually published some um, um, indicators of compromise for these hacks that you can look up. We'll have the link for this as well. Um, you can go and get the, the indicators of compromise if you want to add them to your system so that you can see that if you have this type of behavior happening in your network or not. Awesome. Well, that will def definitely make sure those links are there wherever you're getting this from. So you could check that out. And I should have that up uh, as of recording time, probably the same evening on uh, July the 12th. So it'll be there where this podcast is. Yeah. As we've mentioned before, uh, Fortinet is in, a, is in a particular bad season this time around. Just today, yet another vulnerability, a 9.8 CVSS score. Again, we know about the CVE today. It, it doesn't mean the vulnerability happened magically, uh, appeared magically at midnight. It has been here for some time. And the speed with which the systems are being patched is nowhere near what should be required for something like this. For the previous vulnerabilities affecting the other three components, they were disclosed uh, almost a month ago. There are still over 300,000 publicly available systems out there. I cannot stress this enough. If you're in an organization that has Fortinet stuff, please go look at the updates. Please go look at the updates for this stuff. You need to update now. The, the vulnerabilities as they are known now and the information that's out there means that they are almost trivially exploitable through the internet. So they don't need to be inside of your network to do this. They can do this over the, the internet. Um, be careful. This is widely deployed, this type of systems. Like we saw in the Barracuda one that took quite a few iterations of patches and all of that until the, they just gave up and asked people to send them in the, the devices that they have that they couldn't salvage them. It wouldn't amaze me if we reached the same situation with these appliances. Um, there have been so many iterations of patches and being not being able to close all the holes 
um, and new ones springing up like today, that we might reach that point quite soon. So, yeah, if you're in an organization that has stuff like this, if you're not responsible for it directly, please let whoever is know about it if they haven't and ask them if they've patched now. This is really serious stuff. When I was a kid, one time I had a birthday party at this uh, really fun place where we had a, there's a game of whack-a-mole there where you just have a rubber hammer and you're hitting the moles as they pop up. I didn't know at the time that was going to be uh, foreshadowing my entire career. <laughs> I was a little innocent back then, but that's sometimes what it feels like. You have to patch this, patch that. Um, and, and when Zhao says read, I mean read. Don't just patch and think you're fine. Patch and also read about the situation if you use their appliances to understand it, to know what it is and, and where we stand. Because um, that's another thing that gets missed. Oh, yeah, I patched it. We're fine. No, read about it. <laughs> understand what just happened and what and where we're at because that's what's more important is to understand the bigger picture which seems to be the moral of today's podcast i think yeah again this and i think we always say this but this is a developing story we might get back to this again in the future um sorry for the big rants around red hat it's really it really hits home when a company that has been for so long one of the big names in open source pulls stunt like this. I don't want to appear like somebody that's entitled to always getting open source the way that he or she wants it, but it's really painful to see the, the big names falling like this. It's like a fall of grace and you're watching a slow motion car crash where this is happening and it's really, really painful to, to see. They're yeah, well, making they, all the wrong moves. They are, but I mean, you're not acting entitled. They said they're going to keep the source code available for downstreams. Red Hat said that. So if there's any reason to think we shouldn't have thought that way, well, we shouldn't have trusted what we were told because they gave us a green light for these types of things to exist. And that's the, the main thing here is Red Hat said that we could do this and we're doing what they said we could do. We get bit because we're doing what they said we could do. And here we are. So fun times. <laughs> I'm sure this will continue to develop. Yeah, um, it will. Thanks, everybody who joined. As always, it was a pleasure to be here with you, Jay, and with everybody who joined. And until the next one. Yep. Bye, everybody. Be around.